there's a real sense of God's presence. And I love that when we bring what we have to bring, God just does the rest. I just want to encourage you, it felt like there were moments in the room where people uh, were ready to sing out another song and then held back. And I just want to encourage you, if you feel like God's saying something to you in your seats, go for it. Don't hold back because it's where the Lord wants to take you. I just feel really excited for you as a church and just think, you know, these guys are amazing leaders. I was saying to Kirsty, I I haven't heard someone lead a service that well for a long time. Uh, And I just think she did an amazing job. And I know she's like the most humble person you might ever wish to meet. And we'll say, no, no, that's not me. But it is. Kirsty, you're amazing what you do. And you're, honestly, your kids welcomed me with a big grin and a smile. They love Jesus. And, and that is testament to your parenting, actually. And it says in the Bible that a good leader is someone who can lead their children well. And, and you, you're just great. And so I just want to encourage you this morning. Don't hold back from what the Lord's doing. Uh, I just feel like he's got good and exciting things for you here in Lawrence Kirk and Men's. And we want to press into what the Lord's doing, don't we? Don't we? Because we don't want to just see a few people here on a Sunday. We want to, this is not going to be a big enough place for you. And you, you're going to need a bigger place. And I feel really excited about that uh, for you guys because he wants to do something amazing amongst you and in your midst. Anyway, I don't have very long because I've got to get to Stonehaven, but I do love a chat. Um. <laughs> When uh, I was about halfway through the secondary school system in England, and I think it's the same here, and it's funny that we've just been talking about uh, the kids' exams. You have to make choices about uh, what subjects you're going to take. And I have to say, my mum and dad were really, really good at that. They sat us down, and they knew what our strengths were. They knew the things that we enjoyed. And they would sit us down, and they would chat to us about it, and they would help us decide what kind of degree we were going to do. Uh, And it's interesting because what I'm about to say kind of goes against a little bit what we were just praying there, but but it doesn't. Because, you know, when I was young, I knew what I was for. Uh, I did a teaching degree and I ended up as a teacher. (laughs) My sister did a degree in occupational therapy and she ended up as a... (laughs) And my brother uh, did an IT degree with a year in industry. And uh, that year in industry, he actually still is in the same job that he did in that year of industry. Um, And Paul knew what he was about, just as we as kids knew what we were about. But you know, the interesting thing is that Paul's journey, just like we were kind of praying for the kids, his journey was intervened. He was on a very different path to the path that he ended up on. He was, and you probably know this, he was a persecutor of the Christians. And then he had this amazing moment on the road to Damascus where he was blinded and the Lord spoke to him. And his journey, his path, his directory changed completely. He went from being a persecutor of Christians to the person who was sharing Jesus with whoever he would meet. And we can pray that for our kids, can't we? Whatever happens with their exam results... You know, God has the journey planned out. He has the journey mapped out. But anyway, when Paul was um, blinded, he went to a place called Straight Street, which I always find really amusing. Anyway, he went to Straight Street, and there God gave him a vision that somebody was going to come and lay hands on his eyes, and he would be able to see again. And at the same time as that, Ananias uh, had a vision that he was to go to Straight Street. He was to lay his hand on Saul, as he was then, eyes, and that he would be able to see again. And Ananias said, you know what, Lord? 
I don't want to do that. Because he's a persecutor of the Christians. I don't really know that what's happened to him is really what's happened, what you're saying has happened to him. And so he had a bit of a, a wrestle and an argument with the Lord in that moment. But do you know what the Lord said to him? He said, Paul was his chosen instrument to carry his name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. You see, Paul in that moment knew what he was made for. He knew that he was to take the gospel to as many people as he could possibly find. And we're just about to read uh, in 2 Corinthians, verse 10, 1 to 18, his defense of his ministry. Can I just apologize for the American spelling of defense? I'm a bit of a grammar queen. And me and Becky, Becky's an incredible administrator, by the way. She does the kids stuff and she's awesome. She's just brilliant. And uh, me and Becky often have grammar discussions and spelling discussions. And we're, we're as bad or as good as each other. I'm not sure which way around. But I had a debate about whether to change it. Because in my Bible, defense is with an S. But in English, it's with a C. And anyway, I've left it with an S. So here we go. <laughs> Let's read about Paul's defense of his ministry. It should be up on the screen. Uh, and if you would like a Bible, you want to follow in the Bible, then this beautiful lady here, who I don't know if I've met, what's your name? Veronica, would you be our Bible monitor this morning? Would you be able to hand out the Bibles? So if you just want to put your hands up if you want a Bible, Veronica, the beautiful Veronica will come around and give one. Thank you, Veronica. That's brilliant. Anybody else? Anybody else? Right, you can all read the screen, that's fine. <laughs> okay. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold towards you when away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension, which is like a claim, that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once the obedience is complete. You are judging by appearances. If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will also be in our actions when we are present. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves, when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with their, themselves, they are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but we will confine our boasting to the sphere of service God himself has assigned to us, a sphere that also includes you. We are not going for too far in our boasting, as would be the case if we had not come to you, for we did get as far as you with the gospel of Christ. Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our sphere of activity 
among you will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. For we do not want to boast about work already done in someone else's territory, but that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Amen. Amen. Paul always had his calling in mind, whatever he was doing. That's really apparent in this letter because at the end he says, doesn't he? He says, I want, I want you guys to be built up in maturity so that the work amongst you can expand and so that, that I can go and meet other people and speak to other people with the gospel of Jesus. He had a godly harvest in mind. As I was reading and preparing this week, I came across the story of Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a missionary in China, and uh, he became a Christian when he was a teenager. And when he was a teenager and he'd just become a Christian, he went up to his room one day, and he got down on his knees before the Lord, and he said, I am so grateful for what you've done. I am so grateful for my salvation. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And he said to the Lord, is there anything I can do to repay you? And in that moment, he was lying flat on the ground before the Lord. And he felt a sense of an unexplainable joy and an unexplainable awe before the Lord. And the Lord said to him, you need to go to China and tell lots of people about me. And so do you know what he did? He went to his local minister and he said to him, this is what I feel like the Lord's calling to me to do. And the minister said, oh, dear boy. One day, you'll become older and wiser. What you are hearing about now is the kind of thing that would be okay if Jesus was still living on this earth, but Jesus is not still walking this earth. And thankfully, Hudson Taylor didn't listen to his minister. And he went, no offense, I'm sure you give much wiser advice. And he went to China and he told hundreds and hundreds of people about Jesus. And when you look up Hudson Taylor on Wikipedia, it says that there, are far few, there aren't very many other missionaries apart from Paul himself that spread the gospel as far as Hudson Taylor did. I think if we got a view of what the harvest looked like, our lives and our church would be very different. In verse 15, Paul says, our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our area of activity among you will greatly expand so that you can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. Paul knew what he was called to. He knew that there was a God-sized harvest. He knew that there were hundreds of people out there who don't know Jesus. And he wasn't content with stopping at the little cozy place uh, that the Corinthian church had been. So he was like, Guys, I want you to grow in maturity so you can do so much more for me. And as I was preparing, I was thinking about Chuck and Talon. And you know, when uh, they took over the church, Archie and I were a part of City Church at that time. And there were about 150 of us in the room when it started, probably max. And as it grew, there were people in the whole auditorium. There were people in the balcony. It was absolutely full of people. And they said... This isn't enough. This isn't enough. You probably have heard that Chuck's dad died when he was quite young, maybe 
uh, late teens, early 20s, I'm not sure of the exact age. And I think that's meant that Chuck has a sense that we are only here for a very short amount of time. And he knows that God has called us as a church to reach as many people as possible with the good news of Jesus. And actually, we wouldn't be sitting here today in these seats if they didn't take the vision that God had given them and done something about it. And I think, church, if we really grasped what the harvest out there, the people who don't know Jesus yet, I think we wouldn't be worrying about whether the music was too loud, whether the guy leading it had a bit of a croaky voice this morning. I think that our view would be very different. And maybe you're like, that's okay for you, Jude. Maybe you've got an evangelistic heart. And you, you and some are called to be evangelists, some are called to be apostles, some are called to be preachers, some are called to be administrators. We're all called to different things. But actually, we are called to share the good news of Jesus. And we're called to bring our gifts and our abilities and our talents to the table. And I want to encourage you, if your heart doesn't break for your friends who don't know Jesus yet, pray for them. When I pray for my friends who don't know Jesus, it breaks my heart. Because I don't want them to stand at the pearly gates and look at me and say, Jude, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? I think if if we really take that call and we have a godly view of the harvest, our lives would look so very different. And now Chuck and Taryn have never, as far as I know, never said, oh, for goodness sake, I wish the church would mature themselves so that we can reach more people. But I bet that's a frustration for them. I bet they're like, you know, if the church really got hold of the view of the harvest, if they really ploughed everything into it that they should be ploughing into it, we could be reaching the people of Montrose and Brecon. Come on, church. They don't, I haven't heard them say that. (laughs) But I bet it's a frustration. I bet if they were writing a letter from their sabbatical, it might look something a little bit like that. Because there are people out there who don't know Jesus. And it's because of Paul's understanding of the harvest that he's challenging the church. Uh, We're going to look at what it looks like to have godly tools. So the first criticism of Paul can be found in verse 1 and in verse 10. And uh, they basically say, you know, you're weak and your words don't amount to very much. And they're pretty unimpressive when you're here in person. But when you're away and you write a letter, you're really bold. And he has two things to say about that, I think. And the first one is in verse 3. He says, firstly, hold on a minute. We don't do things like the world does things. We don't wage war as the world wages war. When our children, I've got three children, one's 12, one's 10, and one's 8, And uh, when they first came against people being really unkind to them in school, as a mum, you're like, oh, just give them a punch back and that'll be them done. But no, we didn't say that. We said, you know, kids, we fight baddies with love. And that's been our family phrase. We fight baddies with love because you don't know what that child has been through before they've walked through the door this morning. You don't know what has been happening in their home life. You don't know why they're hitting out or they're using unkind words. And so we need to love people in return. And I think that's a challenge for us, isn't it? 
Are we fighting back as the world would fight back, dog eat dog and manipulation? Or are we loving people? Are we using the tools that the Lord has given us? And in Ephesians 10, you can read all about those tools. You can read all about the armor of God that we've been given. And that's a whole other sermon, so we're not going to go into that. But, but here it's talking about what do we use them for? And then secondly, he says in verse 4, that our weapons are spiritual ones and not worldly ones. They have the power to demolish strongholds. In other parts, um, oh, I've just said that, in other parts of the New Testament, it talks about what they are. But here it talks about what they're used for. And so I'm going to read what it says in the message because I really like the way that it puts it. The tools of our trade aren't for marketing or manipulation, but they're for demolishing that entirely massive corrupt culture. We use our powerful God tools for smashing warped philosophies, tearing down barriers erected against the truth of God, fitting every loose thought and emotion and impulse into the structure of life shaped by Christ. Our tools are ready at hand for clearing the ground of every obstruction and building lives of obedience into maturity. I love that. I particularly love that little bit where it says, demolishing that entire massively corrupt culture. About 10 years ago, my husband and I were living in Aberdeen City Centre in a little flat. And we moved to Blackburn, uh, just near the airport on the way out to Inverurie. And I was so excited about one thing in particular. And the thing I was excited about was having a garden, because I hadn't had a garden. And for me growing up, the garden had been such an important thing. And I was so excited about my garden. And just to give you a little bit of uh, back knowledge, my dad is absolutely obsessed with the grass. So he would weed and feed his grass all the time, and then he would cut it. It was always beautifully manicured, apart from the patch where the goalpost was, where my brother used to play football, because that was always there. But now, because my brother's not playing football on the grass anymore, it is honestly the most beautiful lawn you've ever seen. And when we go down in the summer, we always go down for a little bit. We tease my dad, because after about two days, he's back out there with the lawnmower, and we're like, Dad, it's hardly grown. He's like, yes, but Jude. There are leaves on the grass, and there can't be leaves on the grass. So we've started calling it his hoover, because actually he doesn't really use it to cut the grass. He's really using it to hoover the grass. Anyway, this is the kind of like background that I have in terms of grass and lawns. So you'll understand the rest of my illustration now. So when we got our new flat, I was so excited about being able to mow the grass for the first time. And the people who owned it had left a lawnmower. So I got the lawnmower out. It's a bit of a hill. I was up and down, up and down on our lawn, making it all look beautiful. And then I stood aside and I was like, ha, oh, look, I've managed to mow the grass by myself. And I looked at it and thought, hmm, it doesn't really look like what it looks like when my dad mows the grass. Why is that? And I realized that my lawnmower hadn't been able to get to all the edges of the grass. And so I had these long bits around the side. And we hadn't been left anything else to cut the grass with. So no word of a lie. Can you guess what I did? I got the scissors out. And I actually spent ages cutting the edge of my grass along the side where the bed is and along the side where the fence is. And then I stood back and was like, hmm, that looks a bit better. But it took me forever. And it wasn't long before I bought a strimmer. Because <laughs> I was like, I am not spending hours and hours 
uh, cutting my grass because that's just an absolute waste of time. And when we got our strimmer, it was quick. It was effective. We could cover more ground. It didn't take as much effort. And it looked good. <laughs> it looked pretty, prettier than it did with my scissors. And I think as Christians, we can be a little bit like that. We can use the scissors when actually we have a strimmer on offer. We can use our own human strength to do stuff when actually the Lord is offering us something far more powerful, his presence and his Holy Spirit to be able to go further and faster and more beautifully than we could do in our own strength. And I wonder whether there's someone here today that feels just exhausted. Like, I think I'm doing what God's called me to do, but I am so tired. And I just wonder whether you're doing stuff in your own strength. And actually that the Lord wants to give you his God tools to be able to do the job that he's calling you to do. It was interesting because actually before the service, uh, Kirsty had talked about King Jehoshaphat leading the, the army uh, into battle. And about as they as they led it, they worshipped. And you know, worship is one of those most incredible tools that we can use in the battle. I've lost count of the amount of times I've sat and tried to write a sermon in my own strength, and then suddenly think, "Oh Lord, I need you." And suddenly it changes. I was still writing this yesterday morning. I was like, "Oh Lord, I need you," and I managed to get it finished. So I could spend the afternoon with my kids. I was doing it in my own strength. When we do things in the Lord's strength, it makes a massive difference. And Paul talks about these tools being used to challenge this massively corrupt culture that we find ourselves in. And I think in some respects, we're all in that same culture. We all have the same news and the same media and the same stuff coming at us all the time. But also, there are cultures that you sit in that the person next to you doesn't sit in. It might be your work culture. It might be a WhatsApp group. It might be a Facebook group. It might be a school playground. And you think, do you know there is stuff that is happening there that goes against the truth of God? And I just think, in fact, just for a moment, let's just close our eyes and just ask the Lord, where is that culture that you're asking me to fight against with your power and with your spirit and with your presence, with your God tools? Lord, would you do that now? Lord, would you speak to us? Would you show us that culture, that place that you need to break into? And then, Lord, when you've shown us the culture, show us the tools. Show us what it is that we're to do to bring change, to encourage, to love to lift your name high. Please, Lord. Amen. And then I think that Paul is encouraging the church to have a godly perspective. So a good view of what the harvest looks like, God's tools for the job, and then his perspective. I don't know if you've ever read the book Gulliver's Travels. Anyone read the book? Oh, a few of you. Uh, I was reading about it this week, and it's basically a story of this 
uh, man, his surname's Gulliver, I'm not sure how you pronounce his first name, so we're going to call him Gulliver, who um, goes about traveling. And as he travels, he gets shipwrecked on this island of tiny little people. They're only six inches high. And they end up in this war against another island of six-inch people. Uh, And Gulliver ends up as this hero who comes along and he uh, manages to sort out all of the uh, war and he becomes this like amazing military champion in their midst and lives this wonderful charmed life. I was like, oh, Gulliver, who managed to defeat the battle of six-inch people. (laughs) And then he decides he's going to go back to England. And on his way back to England, he gets marooned on another island. But this time, the island is of giants. And now suddenly, Gulliver is tiny in comparison. And he faces rats that are the size of horses and hailstones the size of footballs. And suddenly, his perspective changes. You see, Gulliver didn't change size. But what was around him did change size. And his view of himself also changed. And I think that we can look at ourselves in two ways. We can look at ourselves with somber judgment, a bit like Gulliver would have done on the island of giants. My brother and his wife uh, were told um, over a year ago that they were expecting a baby, and they were absolutely delighted. It had been a bit of a journey for them, and they were so excited. They went to their 12-week scan, and their 12-week scan, they were told that their baby had a very rare condition called arthrogryposis that affects uh, the baby's limbs and that actually he wasn't going to survive the womb. And if he did survive the womb, he wasn't going to survive being born because his condition was so severe, the worst case they'd seen. So they were encouraged to terminate uh, the pregnancy. And uh, you can imagine as a church, in our staff meetings, we prayed for this baby. There were prayers being prayed all over the world for him. And on the 16th of November this year, last year, last year, he was born a strong, healthy little boy. Yes, he has trouble with his arms and his legs still, but yet they are miraculously changed from what they should have been. But he's alive. And people say to my brother and my um, sister-in-law, are you not cross with the doctors? Because they got it wrong. He lived, and you're encouraged to terminate your pregnancy. And my brother and his wife say, no, the doctors didn't get it wrong. They just didn't take into account God. And I think, church, we can be like that. I think we can look at what we have to bring, and we can think, do you know what? It's not enough. It's not good enough. A bit like how Paul was being accused of his words not being very good. He could have taken that perspective and thought, do you know what, I am rubbish in person. I'm not very good. But he didn't. He decided to take hold of the truth that it was God that was doing a work through him. And he went and he preached the gospel to lots of people. And I wonder whether there's someone here today, maybe more than one person, who feels like I have a dream and I have a vision that God's given me, but I'm not enough. I can't do that in my own strength. Do you know the truth is that you can't? Because actually, it's God that wants to work through you. And I wonder whether it's even a dream or a vision that you started and you you tried and then you gave up because you thought, I just can't do this. 
let's ask the Lord today to awaken that again, but to give us the right perspective of it, him that does the work through us and that he's going to use you. And then on the other hand, uh, a little bit like old Gulliver on the island of Lilliput, he had like a really big perception of himself uh, and he was like, hmm, I'm some amazing military genius. <laughs> and we can also look at ourselves more highly than we ought. You see, in verse 12, Paul is challenging the Corinthians not to commend themselves or to compare themselves with themselves, but rather compare themselves to God's tape measure. Building, uh, being in a multi-site church and being a pastor can be really tricky sometimes because it is a breeding ground for comparison if comparison is an issue for you. And it is an issue for me. So sometimes I could be puffed up with pride and be like, hm, our site's managing to do that thing quite well. And other times I can be like in the depths of despair and thinking, oh, I wish our site was anywhere near as amazing as that. I wish I was anywhere near as great as Kirsty is. And then at the leadership conference uh, a couple of years ago, a guy was speaking to us and he said, stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. It's your race that you're running. It's not somebody else's race that you're running. And, you know, we need to remember that on our journeys and with our vision in mind. Stay in your lane. Don't compare yourself to the people around you, but keep your mind and your heart set on what the Lord is telling you to do. You see, Paul says in verse 18, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commands. I desperately want to get to heaven and for the Lord to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. But I also want to have a vision so big that only God tools and a God perspective can make it happen. I heard recently that if you're not on your knees before the Lord, desperate for him to be using you or filling you with his Holy Spirit, then your vision isn't big enough. Hmm. That's a challenge, isn't it? If we're not on our knees, desperate for more of the Holy Spirit, our vision isn't big enough. That's a challenge for us as a church. Are we on our knees before the Lord saying, Lord, we want you to help us build your kingdom in mass? So often, this is the case in us, I have no idea what the case is here, but so often when we have moments where we're seeking the Lord in prayer, there are five of us there instead of a whole church of us there. If we were all there on our knees before the Lord saying, Lord, would you break in? I think it would be quite different. So I just want to give you that little challenge for the next time you have a pursue night or a prayer meeting as a church. Don't, don't get to the point where only five of you are there and you easily fit into Ali and Kirsty's living room. I don't know where you have it. Be the kind of church you need to hire this hall for your pursue evenings because you're so desperate for the Lord to break in because you want to see this place and the sphere around here transform with the gospel of Jesus. Because this building isn't going to be big enough for you. Let's ask God to give us a godly view of the harvest. Give us his godly tools and keep us having a godly perspective that doesn't rule ourselves out, 
but also doesn't rule God out. 